0: and welcome to another Scottsway podcast and today I'm joined by MSP and writer Alistair Allen to talk about his book Tweed Rins to the Ocean. Hello Alistair. Hello Alistair. So first question is how do you describe Tweed Rins to the Ocean to people?
1: Well um, it's probably a book, well I hope it's a book that appeals to different audiences. It's a book that's about, this, ostensibly, it's a book that's about a walk along the border, which I appreciate other writers have done. Um, But I suppose the difference is it's coming from the perspective of someone who actually comes from that part of Scotland. Um, Although I very happily live at the other end of Scotland, in the the Western Isles, where I'm the the local MSP and have lived there many years, my origins lie very, very close to the borderline. So um, it's a it's a take on on that experience of Scotland, living on the edge of Scotland. Uh, And it's also a hope of interest to anyone who actually wants to to follow me along the way. But I I set myself a challenge at the beginning, um, not just to walk along the border, but to read away along the border too. So it's an attempt to talk about all the very obscure little places I walk through, not just as places on the map, but as places in Scottish history, and places in Scottish literature.
0: That's the, the history, the literature, and the language aspect of the book is something that's very, very interesting, which we'll talk about more, but I think it's interesting to see you specifically talk about Scotland's border and the Scottish borders, and made me think, is the border of, between Scotland and England particularly a Scottish idea? Does it hold more kind of strength in Scotland than it does in England, do you think?
1: Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think people who live near the border on the English side are aware the border is there, but I suppose maybe people in the rest of England aren't as aware of it. I don't know. It's a good question. It's one I kind of poke at a little bit in the book. Um, certainly, to be fair, that there's lots of people in Scotland who are not really sure where the border is or, or how it got there. Um, so it's an attempt to, to try and answer some of those or address some of those questions as well as some of those factual questions about how and when the border got to be there. But yeah, I suppose in, in Scotland's literature, literature and sort of sense of herself, the border has, you know, through people like Sir Walter Scott assumed this big importance in terms of the ballads and in terms of our, I suppose, of Scotland's defense of its own existence. Um, so I suppose it is—it is in there in the national psyche. Maybe in a way, it's not there in the national psyche in England. But uh, I suppose England and Scotland can lay claim to a very old border too.
0: Yeah, and it is a very old border, as you make clear in the book. Um, there's some fantastic kind of maps of how Scotland have changed over the the, the years. A lot of stuff which I didn't know about going you know right to the early early days. Um, So how is the relationship between neighbours across the border? I mean, it's, uh, you know, because you say that language can change in a very, almost across the river, you know, the way that people speak um, changes quite dramatically, or or at least notably across there. So how is that relationship and has it changed over the, it must have changed over the years?
1: I think, I mean, I think it's, a very friendly relationship. I mean, certainly coming from the, the borders, I, I certainly noticed it to be a friendly relationship, but it's a, a, probably a relationship based on an understanding that these are two different countries. So, um, yeah, I, the, I, the example I quote in the, the book, one of the places I walk through is, is a village called Yetham, And I point out the fact that my mother was born in the first house in Scotland, or the last house in Scotland, and the end of her uh, back garden was England. but. There was no dispute about the fact that she was in Scotland the next farm was in England, the fact they spoke quite different ways, probably drank different beer, went to different churches, you know, I I don't think any of that is a problem and I suppose the the book is, is making the argument none of these things are a problem. I mean I think some writers recently have tried to suggest they are and you've got people like Boris Johnson who stands up in the House of Commons and says there is no border between Scotland and England. I think all of that is just another way of trying to say that, that Scotland's not there, yeah. which I think is a bit of a silly argument for, for people to make and, and not one we should take very seriously.
0: Yeah, I know um, knowing a little bit about the area as well, I would say that's right. I knew many people who, say, lived in towns like uh, Annan uh, and then worked in Carlisle, and it's just like someone living in Glasgow and working in Falkirk or something like that. There was no you know, real problem there at all. So why did you want to write this book? Because, as you say, you've you've moved away from the area, was it partly to kind of reconnect with your, the land of your childhood?
1: I suppose partly. um, Partly I I suppose it was also because although I knew the eastern end of the border very well, I really didn't know the western end of it at all. Um, And it was there is something very interesting about a line on the map, an invisible line on the map, and um, which certainly when I started walking, I realized wasn't really invisible at all. And um, it was something that was part of my mental furniture growing up mm-hmm. um, in an entirely positive way. And, and for most of the border, it's actually, dif- it's a, a, a it's an interesting line. I think there's only about two miles of it are a straight line. Um, and it, it follows natural features. It follows historical features. Um, it's it's a it's a line that's been there a long time. As you mentioned, the, if you look back into the Middle Ages, you can see how before Scotland and England were were really states. Um, the border did move about, but the border's been exactly where it is really since the 13th century. Yeah. Um, and uh, the disputes that there have been are you know, some of them are football pitch sized. There are exceptions to that. The town of Berwick has gone back and forth. Um, and there's the debatable land, which is a, a little parcel of land at the very Western end of the border. But with the exception of those two areas, the line hasn't really shifted. Some of that's because, because it's been fossilized, because we haven't had, we haven't had a state in Scotland to have wars in, in modern centuries. Yeah. Um, so some of that's the reason for that. But it's difficult to point to a country in the world that has an older land border. I think Andorra can probably beat us. Um, It's difficult to find one.
0: Maybe that's the next book, Walking the Borders of (laughs) Andorra. The The, the weather might be better, that's for sure. (laughs) Might be uh, up in the Pyrenees. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think that you do try and stick on the whole as close to the border as possible, even though that provides some tricky walking (laughs) <laughs> yes, it was
1: a bit a bit dogmatic the way I approached it. I mean, I was quite liberal in the way I decided what books to read on the way, but I was pretty dogmatic about following the border. Um, so the friends who came with me on the walk, uh, some, some of them, I think, refused to come on some bits of the walk because they knew what it was going to be like. But most of it, the bits at each end are actually very walkable, very easily walkable. Some bits of the border, uh, the border is a white line down the middle of a road, um, most places you can walk quite near the, the border on, on paths and so on. The bit in the middle, um, over the Cheviots and down through the Kielder Forest, that is more difficult. Uh, and there was there were one or two bits that I walked through that I, I definitely took too literally, as, as you, you'll find when you read the book, that one or two of my friends really did protest at where I took them.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of doing walking. and You go, I'm sure that's a shortcut. We'll just cut through there and suddenly... <laughs> You're in big, big trouble. So we, we mentioned that there's the historical literary uh, aspect to it. Did you have to do a lot of research into that? And uh, and what was your most interesting discovery?
1: Well, I discovered so many things. I mean, uh, in terms of the, the border itself, I mean, I discovered lots of things about tiny little disputes that there have been over the centuries, some of them quite recent, in fact. But in terms of the literary side of it, um, I knew a bit about some of the writers, uh, I a fair bit about Hogg and a bit about Scott. I discovered that there was lots and lots of literary scenes, if you like, uh, along the, the actual line I was walking. So, for instance, at one point, uh, I walk a, along a path along the Cheviots and realize I'm crossing the path that the devil took in Hogg's Justified Sinner. Or you realize that you're, you're passing through a scene in Red Gauntlet. Or, um, or all this. One of the more surprising literary scenes I found was, um, as readers will discover, uh, uh, if they are fans of, of Slipknot, um, they actually name one of their albums after one of the places, or one of their songs rather, through one of the places I walked through. So it's, it's an interesting mixture of stuff. And I've tried to mix in um, historical stuff, uh, 18th and 19th century literature, but also a bit of medieval literature as well, and also some forgotten writers. So I've, I've mixed in some. Some either some writers were very local, uh, or some writers who actually did have national prominence, but have been completely forgotten, perhaps justifiably forgotten, uh, and also the border ballads. So many of the border ballads are not about a particular place. They're you know they're like folk stories that appear in different places at different times, um, but some of them are very much about specific events. So some of them are about. When James V appeared on the border, and uh, or some of them are about um, skirmishes or events, um, or the Reavers. So the Reavers make a, a regular reappearance throughout. So, so there's lots of stuff in there, depends what your interests are, but hopefully it covers enough of these things to make people realise that it's more than just a walk. I think I'm always annoyed by people who, you know, climb a hill and say they can't remember its name. You know, I think it's a kind of form of rudeness. So I think, I hope that it's one of these books that makes the case that um, if you're going to visit somewhere, just read up a wee bit about it before you go.
0: It makes for such a more interesting read apart from anything else. And it did make me think, you know, do you think that the Borders have made enough of that kind of literary... Um, past uh, because you know, you've got as you say, Hogg and Scott, you've Thomas Carlyle, you mentioned Burns latterly, you've got Hugh McDermott as well in the area. I mean, there's so many. Uh, in fact, even D- David Hume, is that right? Was he you, you mentioned? Hume. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I've tried to be quite specific. I've tried to be, I've tried to not even so much write about the borders, but the border, you know, and, yeah. and people who've lived or grown up or written within a few miles of the border, obviously. Scott lived maybe twenty miles north of the border, but he wrote a lot about the border. So um, you know, even if you just look at this very, very thin sliver of Scotland, say from the border to five or six miles north of the border, mm-hmm. all the people that you've mentioned, you know, are, are in there. And and that to me is just an amazing, mm-hmm. amazing piece of amazing fact. But yeah. it, it makes it a very interesting place to write about. In terms of the impact that they've had more generally, the borders, I mean, it, I think there was a time when people read Scott more than they do now, yeah. when you know the borders would have been as much of a tourist destination as Loch Ness or the Isle of Skye, which they're not now. Uh, and I think that's just a, as a direct consequence of the fact that people haven't, have, don't read
0: Scott and Hogg in, in the way that they maybe did a hundred years ago. Uh, that's interesting because people maybe don't realize that who don't read them or don't know about Scott, just how popular he was as a, as a writer and partly responsible for certain ideas of how Scotland, you know, looked or or how he made people think it should look. So there was a a kind of um, interest, not just in the books, but in in the man himself. I think so. And
1: I think, uh, I mean, Scott is in some ways indigestible uh, these days. I mean, Scott, uh, you have to persevere. But I think one of the things that makes Scott fascinating is is the places, the the connection between Scott and the places. So I mean, I think in the days when Scott was read by a mass market over all the world, all these place names that I mentioned in my book, which to most readers will be completely obscure, many of them were actually as famous as the places in Harry Potter are now. So these obscure little places I was walking through, I suppose it's an attempt to kind of breathe a bit of life back into people's understanding of where these people are and how they connect with with Scott and with Hogg and other people. Um, Because because many of these place names were known across the world, especially in in poems like Marmion. It's difficult to understand now, but um, the places around Flodden and so on that are mentioned in in Marmion. These are places that people in Germany were writing about and reading about and writing operas and songs about. Um, So it's an attempt just to remind people that these places were once famous.
0: Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Scott as well, but I think you're right. There's not that many folk who maybe read them uh, as as certainly as used to. Now, I, I, you mentioned the reavers there, and there'll be people listening who are not aware of, of the reavers and the history. Well, I, I think that's one of the other
1: interesting things about the, the border history is that uh, although the border line has been, as I say, pretty clear, not give or take invasions here and there, um, both sides of the border from at the time of the wars of independence, right up until the Union of the Crowns, so that's the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, were pretty lawless. Um, uh, They were probably certainly the most lawless parts of the Scottish lowlands and certainly the most lawless parts of England. And the reavers were essentially highly fortified farmers and minor lairds uh, who... Decided that they were going to run what you can only really politely now call a protection racket, Uh, and and the economy was really based around stealing your neighbour's property, Uh, and by the neighbours, I don't just mean across the border, but you know within communities. So you know it was a a, there was a lot of organised crime, which was then uh, kind of elevated into a, a system of government almost, and then into Elevated into literature and romanticized, but the Reavers are, are very much part of the Scottish border psyche. This idea that um, this was a lawless part of the world.
0: Yeah, I, I always think of it as the closest we've ever come to having a Wild West. That kind of, you know. Yeah, like,
1: it was. I think it was like that, and I think it was. It, it was definitely like that, and I think um, you know that's possibly part why Scott was once very popular in the in the Wild West and in the, the deep south of America. I don't know, but. Um, certainly it's um, yeah, I think the, the border it, were administered, the, the, the six marches as they talked about, so three districts on the south, southern side of the border, and three districts on the, the northern regions on the northern side of the border. The, the six of these regions were administered by the two respective kings almost not quite at arm's length by, by three wardens on each side but they were more as much peacekeepers as they were civil servants. So, yeah, so that, that, that feeds into the, the, the border ballad tradition as I say, and probably in modern times into some of the inter-district suspicions that exist within the borders, between border towns and so on.
0: People have long memories. <laughs> <That's the point. laughs> um, well, one of the things that does keep coming up um, is how changes, particularly in transport, affected the area you've got the, the the train system being cut and a lot of the train services to many of the villages and towns and in, in the borders been cut and then you've got the motorway expansion and I know that that you know took out traffic that you would used to go through these towns suddenly was going around the towns and all of the, the things that, that have changed do you th- feel that a lot of the places you've visited felt out of time because of that?
1: Uh, I'm not I to a bit out of time i mean I think that most of the places that I was walking through there were were off the beaten path yeah uh, and the, there were some places that I went through you know Newcastleton and, and, um, in in towards the western end well in the middle of the, the border um uh, that's an example of a place which probably had a railway before it had a road mm. um in fact people wrote about that as a, as a community that historically had no road there was no way into it other than to walk or walk across the, the bogs, or break your horse's legs trying to get to it, um, and so the the railway probably got there before the road, and then so when the, the 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 railway went, communities like that certainly did feel it and probably felt more isolated than they had in the past. So yeah, you, you do see some of that coming through in some of the communities that you that I was walking through. I mean, some of the other things that you know were striking, I suppose, was um, some One or two places like Gretna, however, were, were tourist yeah. traps, um, uh, but uh, beyond that, there were pretty out-of-the-way places.
0: It's an interesting part when you kind of come into Gretna and suddenly, <laughs> what of a better world, the Western world, the modern world is suddenly open <laughs> to you. Because it's quite, if people haven't been to Gretna, um, there are big kind of shopping areas and you've got the the wedding industry for one of a better term going on it's a quite an extraordinary place
1: yeah it's quite a shock to the system when you've just walked i didn't do all in a oneer but when you walked along the the border through these out of the way places and then and then you hit gretna gretna only has a couple of thousand people in it i should say but it's a, it's a busy place um and of course gretna has has featured in people's understanding of the border and uh, it's a kind of synonym for the border and it's um Uh, the wedding industry, as you see, which is there because of differences historically in in marriage law between Scotland and England. So, uh, yeah, again, it's it's an unexpected thing to come across. The other thing in that part of the border that I didn't really know about um, was the Solway Firth, which is a stunningly beautiful place um, and which, without giving away any spoilers, was the, the site of the most recent border dispute, which was just in the 1970s. So, um, so the border takes you all the way just beyond Annan, follows the, the, the Solway Firth out to there, and then officially the sea begins.
0: Yeah, because you, well, again, I, I, the hotel you end up in, I know well, and you, that view, as you see, kind of almost looking back from where you came is quite an a, a interesting way to finish, definitely. But I guess, actually, that thing about Gretna is kind of what I'm thinking about, is it is still on a main transport line, it's on the main road in and out of Scotland, whereas the places that you've come from, coming from east to west, have lost a lot of that connection, if they ever had it in the first place.
1: Possibly, yeah, possibly. I mean, I think um, because of the fact I'm going along the border very literally, you know, I'm missing out some of the the main border towns to some extent, but but yeah, the the border itself is, um, parts of it are are quite wild. The, The wildest bits of the border, as I say, are probably and uh, the bits to avoid are probably uh, down uh, near Kielder um, and uh, going through the forest. There's an enormous commercial forest, takes up a huge chunk of the, the western part of the border. Um, uh, the area of the forest is bigger than London. Oh, so this yeah. was built after this built. I said built, at Freudian slip, but was was planted just after the after the Second World War. Um, the other thing that I didn't know about and didn't expect to find is, is something called the Scots Dyke which was, uh, I suppose, the last bit of the border, the last couple of miles of the border to be defined um, near Cannon Bay uh, at the western end of the border, where the two governments agreed to dig a little ditch um, for two or three miles to, to uh, divide up, what had until then been the debata- debatable land. Um, uh, and I was amazed walking through the woods to see that bits of it are, are still there, this little ditch that the two governments... Doug, I mean, a lot of people commented on Facebook, actually, when I was doing the walk, that a lot of bits of the border, when you compare them to other borders in the world, are actually quite unthreatening. <laughs> uh, you know, it's mostly it's a fence between two fields, or uh, it's a, a little ditch that somebody dug 500 years ago, or it's a burn. So it's, it's a quite an
0: unthreatening border. Well, I think most parts you could be across it both ways and not even known. You know, you could have, apart from, you know, where there's definite things like rivers or, or anything like that, there are times. Um, and going back and walking these areas, did you have anything changed about your mind on the area? Did you, did it kind of support what you already thought? What, uh, to start, how old were you when you left? So, you know. Um, well, I suppose,
1: well, I went to university when I was 18. So, I mean, I, I, I grew up in a little village near uh, Selkirk and yeah but I still have family in the borders I'm still doing there quite regularly but uh, yeah I, I suppose I haven't lived in the borders since I was 18 I uh, went away to university um but I think the uh, I suppose what it, what it probably confirmed in my mind is that despite <clears throat> excuse me despite the fact that... Quite a lot of writers have tried their very best to say that the border isn't there. It very definitely is. Uh, you can answer that in in different ways. You can, you know, you can look at the literature. You can look at just people's understanding of the place that they live in. You can just look at the fact that Scotland exists. As I say, you know, many of the attempts to say the border isn't there is, is just another way of saying that Scotland isn't there. Yeah. And I think that people in Scotland are more and more aware that Scotland is there. Borders are, are a fact of, of nations that are connected to other nations by land. And I just think people are probably going to get a bit more relaxed about all this in the future and celebrate it a bit more.
0: And I think that comes down to the people that I know from that area are well aware that it exists. You know, they—they, they, it's it's part of who they are and part of the area that they're in. I think a lot of people might think, rather than a uh, walk in the border, the thing to do in that area would be to walk Hadrian's Wall, but that's much, <laughs> yes. that, that's a much more difficult thing. I've tried that myself, and it it's difficult oh, yeah, right. It's di- A long, long time ago. Right.
1: That, well, that's, that's one of the interesting things, is a few people did comment when I was doing all this. They did say, well, why do you not just walk along Hadrian's Wall? Well, you, you have walked along Hadrian's right. Wall. I, but, I didn't
0: do um, it. I attempted it. I did not do oh, yeah, it. Oh, you attempted it. Right. <laughs> but, uh,
1: I mean, Hadrian's Wall is used as a synonym, of course, for the border. And people talk about north of Hadrian's Wall. You know, my, my grandmother, on my mother's side, I think, was born north of Hadrian's Wall, but she was very much a Northumbrian. She was very much English. Um, so, you know, Hadrian's Wall and the border have never coincided. Wow. Uh, so Hadrian's Wall begins right on the border, almost begins right on the border in the Solway Firth. Um, But by the time it gets to the east coast, it's about 70, 80 miles south of the border. So the Hadrian's Wall has never formed the border of of Scotland and England. Um, It's a defensive structure. Obviously, the Romans put there at a time before Scotland and England existed. But it's it's never, ever formed the border between Scotland and England. And that often is a surprise to people.
0: I think it has, because you were saying how the, the, the actual border is very unthreatening and there's no... You know, but actually the wall itself, that in people's minds would be, oh yeah, that's how you defend the border. It's that Game of Thrones thing where you've got the, the wall going up and, you know, something like that.
1: Yeah, I and mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't run away from the fact in writing this book, which is a celebration of a border. I wouldn't run away from the fact that borders in many parts of the world have been tragedies and disasters. Yeah. and You only need to look at Trump's attempt to put barbed wire along the length of Mexico and all this. To see that borders have been tragedies, and you can look at India and Pakistan, or you can pick many examples around the world. So I'm not running away from that. And some of the stuff in the book does talk about in the past, about the, the, the bloodshed and the fact that the border was used as a place to run between, um, you know, for for people who had committed acts of violence. So I'm not, I'm not trying to run away from that, but I think it is a pretty unthreatening border. The one thing I haven't mentioned though as well is that um, the other thing that I kind of discovered a bit more about when I was writing this book uh, is uh, my mother's family and the gypsies um, because Yetim was the home, the village near Kelso was the headquarters of, of the, the gypsies in the South of Scotland and the gypsy monarchy Existed there up until not much over a hundred years ago. Um, so certainly, my mother's family have have got strong Gypsy connections in their ancestry coming from that village, um, and that was a, a part of my own history I hadn't really thought about or discovered until, until I researched the book.
0: And that makes me think about the people that you encountered on as you went along. Did you feel that there was? Or change or no more than than anywhere else. Because you've got, I guess what I'm thinking is you've got different industries as you move. You've got farming and then as you get closer to the Solway, you've got fishing and then, of course, you've got more modern industries um, that that were set up in the area as well.
1: Yeah, I suppose the only really uh, industrialised places on the border itself are are Annan and, well, to some extent, Gretna and then at the other end, Berwick, um, There are obviously there are probably more industrialised or semi-industrialised towns on the Scottish side, immediately on the Scottish side than on the English side. On the English side, uh, in northumberland in Northumberland, um, big stretches of that are um, are given over to the MOD, who have a huge um, um, range for the fire shells and things, and there's. There's probably more villages and towns immediately on the Scottish side of the border than, than on the English, um, certainly certainly throughout the eastern part of the border. Um, but, uh, but yes, tourism is an industry too. And, and although kind of joke a bit about Gretna, uh, it's an industry that was very much invented really by Sir Walter Scott. So there's a kind of tie in there as well.
0: Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right and uh, something that uh, while i was reading the book came up in the news which made me think about borders was the welsh and english border and the chester football situation where you had the rules for wales the covid rules for wales and i think that's where the pitch is about the car parks in england and so <laughs> yeah there's not many there's
1: not many examples of that in scotland oh. you know i, I that, there's not, I couldn't find, for instance, a house that had its gap, you know, where one half was in Scotland and the other half was in England. I definitely couldn't find that. But you mentioned football and, of course, interestingly, uh, Berwick Rangers. This is, leads, I suppose, into talking about the ambiguities of Berwick. Everywhere along the border seems to be pretty clear which country you're in. Yeah. But Berwick is slightly different. And the reason I'm reminded of when you talk about football is, of course, Berwick Rangers play in Scottish football, um, and uh, famously beat Glasgow Rangers in 1967, which is still talk about in, in, in Berwick. And um, yeah, there are things about Berwick which are slightly confusing, but one of them being, of course, that the Scottish county of Berwickshire does not contain Berwick uh, and hasn't, had, hasn't done for five and a half centuries. Um, and since the end of the 15th century, uh, Berwick has been either in or administered by, by England. Um, so, but Berwick is still a bit ambiguous, uh, the accent to a Scot sounds English but to an Englishman sounds Scottish. Um, they play as I say in Scotch football, um, there's a Scottish regiment which has its museum there, it's slightly, it's slightly Danzig like probably. Um, But that's very much the exception, you know, it's difficult to point to anywhere else along the border that has that kind of
0: slight ambiguity still. Yeah, I did wonder if there was a place where, you know, half of them would have been paying the poll tax before the other half, you know. (laughs) Well, maybe not. Do do you think you've, now the the book's out there, and for the video version, I should say, I've got the copy here so you can see it. do you have another book in mind? Have you got um, something else that you think you might do? I I haven't quite thought about
1: that one yet. We'll we'll just have to see what uh, what time is left in my diary at the end of each week, but um, I might put my mind to that idea. I've enjoyed writing the book. I mean, I've enjoyed doing something that's really unrelated to my job, uh, which is probably a good idea for people to do from time to time. I've enjoyed getting outside um, and I think probably as we come out of a a lockdown and a a pandemic, uh, I think there's an important lesson in there in itself that people need to get out a bit more, uh, and particularly people need to get outside and explore their community. So I'm trying to make that argument quite strongly throughout the book. So I'll try and do a bit more of that, and if a book comes out
0: of it, then who knows? Yeah, it's an extreme version of going for your kind of daily walk or something like that, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, Driven, but it's a fascinating book. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, Alistair, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And we'll be back soon with someone completely different.